Well, uh, as we've been looking, as uh, Graham explained earlier in the morning, we're looking at the book of Philippians, talking a lot about gospel partnership. And so I thought it would be good in the evenings to unpack what is the gospel, understanding the gospel. And uh, I want to again acknowledge uh, Philip Jensen and uh, Tony Payne, who put together this course, Two Ways to Live. Uh, You know, there's part of me that would love to be able to sit down with every member in this church and teach them this course, to go through it with them. Um, I'm doing it with Robin Turton right now, and I've told Robin he's got to do it with two people. And uh, those two people will have to do it to two people. So it's going to filter down. Just wait there. It's coming your way. It's coming your way. And um, it's a great little tool of sharing the gospel. I found it very helpful, and uh, I'm I'm gladly acknowledging Tony Payne has done some great little talks uh, about understanding the gospel, which I am really robbing them blind. So I want you to know that, and thank you, Tony. Uh, Let's just quickly review where we've got to. We thought about the creation, that God is the loving creator of the world, that he made the world, and he made us rulers of the world under him. It was a perfect world. Uh, It says in Revelation 4 verse 11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God made everything. He deserved to be worshipped and praised. Secondly, uh, this is not the perfect world as we first read in the scriptures because of sin. The Bible says that we've all rejected the rule of God. We all try to run life our own way without Him. But the problem with that is that we fail to rule ourselves. We uh, fail to rule our society or the world around us. And uh, it says in Romans 3, 10 to 12, there is no one righteous, no one right with God. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, All have turned away. Well, what's God going to do about this rebellion? Well, we thought uh, a number of weeks ago that God will not let us rebel forever. That God's punishment for rebels is death and judgment. God is in charge. It says in Hebrews 9.27, Man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So yeah, we all know we're going to die. But the Bible is very clear that beyond death, we will be held accountable for the way that we have lived our lives. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And and it's a very serious thing. Two weeks ago, Mez very helpfully unpacked for us what God has done about this. He hasn't just left us in this terrible state. Because of his, his love, God sent his son into the world, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who always lived under God's rule, and yet by dying in our place, he he took our punishment and brought forgiveness. And so in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, it says this, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That's why Jesus came to die on the cross. Well, we thought about that two weeks ago. Tonight, we're going to think about this, this box number five, resurrection. Let me just quickly outline the main points. Uh, God raised Jesus to life again as the ruler of the world. So obviously we're coming up to Easter next year and we think on Good Friday of, of the cross and we will be thinking about on Easter Sunday this wonderful news of the resurrection. Jesus did not stay dead, but he was raised to life. And Jesus conquered death. He now gives new life and will return to judge. And it says in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's what we're going to think about tonight. We're going to think about the resurrection. Now, why is it important to do this? I, I would suggest if there is one aspect of the gospel that we as Christians uh, most often misunderstand, it is the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. For many years, I would have to say that, in truth, I didn't really understand what the Bible had to teach about this subject. And, and so I didn't really grasp the significance of the resurrection. There is no doubt that the resurrection should feature in our gospel presentations. It is very important. If you need to see that, uh, just one rainy afternoon in Edinburgh, if we ever have a rainy day in Edinburgh, and uh, really there's nothing uh, else to do, why don't you sit down and read through the book of Acts and look at the evangelistic sermons in the book of Acts. And as you do that, you will see that not all of those sermons, or not all the sermons there, talk about the death of Jesus. But every one of them will talk about the resurrection. Now, that's quite an astonishing discovery for us, I would say, today. Because we can't imagine ever sort of sharing the gospel and not including talking about the cross in our preaching. That seems to be very bizarre to us. And of course, if we understand 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, then it tells us that Christ died for our sins is central and of first importance. So, of course, it will play a part. And yet, in their sermons, they did not always seem to cover the cross as you read through Acts. And we sometimes feel, well, if you don't really include the resurrection, then maybe not much has been lost. It can be a postscript. We kind of really just focus on the cross. And our problem is that we are used to thinking of the resurrection as a kind of a proof text for the existence of God. Sort of a knockdown argument for the supernatural. It's the great outstanding miracle. The evidence that Jesus truly was God. That there really is life after death and that all the supernatural claims of, of Christianity are true. That's how we often use it. But you know, Jesus warned us that this argument does not work. Uh, the rich man in Hades, in the parable that Jesus told in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, he begs Abraham, doesn't he, if you recall, to let him go back and warn his brothers. And Abraham replies that if they will not listen to the Bible's teaching in Moses and the prophets, then they will certainly not repent, even if someone comes back from the dead. Isn't that interesting? See, the resurrection will not convince people to repent. That's what Jesus says. It's not a proof text. And yet that's how often we, we use it as Christians in our gospel presentations. So what is the resurrection about? Well, tonight I want to think about some key concepts. And uh, firstly, I want us to talk about the resurrection. It's not so much about the resurrection of Jesus, but understanding the resurrection more generally. See, in the Bible, the resurrection is a much bigger and broader topic in its own right that we need to understand. See, in the Old Testament understanding, resurrection is judgment day. The resurrection day is judgment day. It is the end of the world. We, we saw that in our Old Testament reading. Did you notice that back in Daniel chapter 12? Uh, Daniel, at the end of his prophecy, looks forward to a day when everybody will be raised. Um, some to everlasting life, 
and others to everlasting shame and separation from God. This is the day of judgment. This is the resurrection day. This resurrection day is the same one that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 5, verse 28 to 29, where he says this, For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. You see, at the resurrection, everybody will be raised. The resurrection, then, you see, is is another way of talking about judgment day. It ushers in the kingdom of God. Now, in our New Testament reading tonight from John's Gospel, we heard about Jesus' conversation with Martha. Let's look back. Open your Bibles again to John chapter 11. In verse 23, you'll find that on page 1078, 1078. And you see, with that background, this conversation makes a little bit more sense. John 11, verse 23. The background, of course, is that uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were great friends with Jesus. Jesus used to pop in and have meals with them. And, and uh, Lazarus has died. Jesus has come. And uh, he's seeking to comfort Martha. John chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus says to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Do you see that? See, Martha thinks, and and really all New Testament believers uh, thought at that time, that the resurrection is something that happens to everyone. It's a way of talking about the final judgment. And then Jesus says this most extraordinary thing to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Now this is strange for us to hear, but what Jesus is really saying is this. I am the judgment day. I am the end of the world. That's what Martha is hearing. I'm what it's all about, Martha. I'm the resurrection. Now, to get this, we need to really understand our Old Testaments a bit better to get the background. And uh, there are a number of places we could go, but I think that the the clearest place to turn to uh, this evening is Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. And you'll find that on page 868 if you have church Bibles. If you're new with us, you're new to uh, Christianity, well, welcome. So good to have you here. Our Bible is made up of two halves, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the, is the Jewish part of the Bible, and uh, Ezekiel uh, is, is in the Old Testament. So this is happening uh, several hundred years before Jesus turned up in history. So let's turn back to Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. Now, These chapters look forward to a time when God would resurrect his people from the dead. Chapter 37 is pretty famous for a pretty uh, interesting jazz song, Them Bones, Them Bones, Them Dry Bones. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the famous Valley of the Dry Bones section. And uh, the Lord takes Ezekiel and he brings him to this incredible and horrific sight, a valley full of bones. Look at 37 verse 2, he led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. These are 
old, desiccated, you can't get more lifeless bones than this. And the question comes, he asks me, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answers very wisely, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And as he prophesies, bones come together, tendons come about, flesh come about, and and suddenly the, the, the valley is full of a vast number of bodies, but with no breath. And then look down at verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Now this amazing chapter is really promising a resurrection day for God's people, a resurrection by the Spirit of God who is going to come and put life in his people and raise them to life again. Now this is twins with what's going on back in chapter 36. Just over the page, look at uh, chapter 36 and verse 24. Just on the other side of the page there. Same page, page 868, chapter 36 and verse 24. God promising again what he's going to do in the future. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And be careful to keep my laws. You see what the Lord is doing? He's promising he's going to give them a new heart. He's going to breathe new life into them. Through his own breath. Through his own spirit. And then look back at chapter 37 again. And, and if, you look, if you look to verse 24 in chapter 37. This is all tied together with another hope of what's coming in the future. The hope of another Messiah. A David-like king. But this, this king is quite different. Look at this. Chapter 37, verse 24. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. It's amazing. Gathering of promises. It's looking forward to a day where there's going to be a resurrection day, where the Spirit of God is going to breathe new life. People are going to be transformed, new hearts. They're going to be made fit for a, for a new resurrection day. They're going to live forever with a king, a Messiah king, a, a king like King David. Now that's, in a sense, one place where you see all these ideas of, of, of a resurrection day hope in one section. Do you see that the giving of the Spirit of God, the pouring of His powerful presence into His people was an important part of this Old Testament expectation of the resurrection, the new life of God's eternal kingdom that was coming. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2, page 1093. We're moving now into the New Testament. This is after Jesus has come and Jesus has risen and Jesus ascends to God's right hand. 
the uh, disciples were told to wait around for the Spirit to be poured out. And the Spirit was poured out, causing him to speak in lots of different tongues and uh, praising God that a great crowd gathers in Jerusalem. And, and uh, in fact, a huge crowd. And Peter is asked to explain what's going on. And, and just look at the, in the light of that Ezekiel background, just pick up what uh, Peter is saying here in this sermon as he's speaking really not so much about the Spirit, but uh, about Jesus. Look at Acts 2 verse 22. Page 1093, Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And so he explains from the Old Testament, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. He's quoting uh, the Psalms. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in his presence. So David, I think in Psalm 16, isn't it? Psalm 16, uh, writing a thousand years before Christ, he says, he, he says that his body's not going to decay. He's God's anointed king. His body's not going to decay. And then verse 29, Peter explains this. Brothers, I can com- tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. So this psalm was not about him. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we're all witnesses of the fact exalted at the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. See all the connections that are being pulled together here? It's because Jesus has been raised from the dead that it's quite clear that he is the Messiah that's always been, uh, that they've always been expecting and hoping for. God made promises that it would be a king who would live forever, but each of the kings of Israel kept dying. It really was very frustrating for the promise of God. So it would appear. But here is, a, here is one in the line of David who was raised from the grave. His body did not see, to, to, to see decay or destruction. And so we know because of the resurrection that he is the Messiah. And in fact, the fact is, judgment day came in his death upon the cross. And his spirit is being poured out from heaven because the risen, exalted Christ is entering into his kingdom and the Spirit is being poured out because we are now in resurrection day time. The new age has crashed into the old age. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to Martha as he, as he is seeking to encourage her. He is saying to her, he is that resurrection day. He is that life that eternal life, that resurrection life, 
that was long promised for and long looked forward to. He has come now in advance of the final great day of judgment. And having been raised as Messiah, he now pours out the Spirit, which is the sign that he truly is the Messiah and that the kingdom of God has come. And because he is the risen Messiah, the King, the ruler of this new age, he can give resurrection life to those who believe in him. See, when you become a Christian, uh, according to the New Testament, you die with Christ and you're raised with Christ. His death is your death. And his resurrection is yours. It's now yours spiritually, but eventually, uh, at the end of time, a physical resurrection as well. As Romans 8 speaks of it, the redemption of our bodies. We're looking forward to a day when we get a resurrection body like the resurrection body of Jesus. And we are looking forward to that day of the redemption of our bodies. And every year I get older, I am more excited about that body. This body keeps failing me horribly. And I look forward to the redemption of my body that is to come. It says that in Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Listen to this. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He's addressing Christians. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Or my favorite book at the moment, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven... And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. There is our hope and our expectation. So what I want to say is that the resurrection is a much bigger concept than just the resurrection of Jesus. See, the resurrection is the judgment day. It's the end of the world. And Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of that final resurrection. That's how the language of Scripture. He's the first fruits of the full harvest that is to come on the final resurrection. So there's an important concept to grasp. Secondly, another important fact is that Jesus really was raised. For us to belong to this age to come... For us to have a citizenship in heaven, it is absolutely essential that Jesus was raised from the dead physically in history. The New Testament goes to some trouble to show us that the resurrection was not just some spiritual reality, but actually happened. This was not the appearing of a ghost. It was a real body capable of eating fish, a body that could be touched, a body that could be felt. It was a different sort of body, a body for the next age, but a body all the same. And the fact that uh, Jesus remained on earth for a short time before ascending into heaven really was for our sake, and for the sake of the gospel. Jesus was showing that it, it was a new body, a spiritual one that belonged to heaven, not earth, and yet he remained here so that he could be seen and witnessed, and so that the dawn of the resurrection age could be preached. And so Paul, as he uh, got struck down on the Damascus Road, he sees at the right hand of God, Jesus, in his glorious resurrection body. And, and so you know, that's why he writes a chapter like 1 Corinthians 15. He knows that there's going to be a resurrection day. He's seen the resurrected Christ. And it is our hope that we will have a body like his body. He is the first fruits of, 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 of the resurrection day for those who trust in Christ. A third point what does the resurrection of Jesus really mean? Now, we could say lots of things at this point. We could say it's about the conquest of death. 
That would be true. We could say that the devil no longer has the last word, and that's true. And that Jesus' death was, a, was, a, was satisfactory to the Father. In a sense, when Jesus was raised, it, it lets us know that his sacrifice on the cross fully paid for all our sins. All these things are true. But the fundamental meaning of the resurrection is that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the Christ. It's all about who he is. He is the ruler of the world. He is the one who brings new life. He is the one who will judge the living and the dead. That is what Jesus, his resurrection, demonstrates. But it only really makes sense, I think, when you understand the Old Testament background that we've been thinking about this evening. See, if you really were able to prove that someone rose from the dead, and it wasn't just some tricks done with mirrors or TV cameras and stuff like that, blue screens or whatever, green screens... Let's say we could actually um, make someone rise from the dead. How would that show us that he's the ruler of the world? It doesn't really follow, does it? Unless you have the Old Testament background, the Old Testament expectation of the meaning and the significance of resurrection, that it is judgment day, the end of the world, and that God's Messiah will judge in that day and rule God's resurrected people in the new kingdom of God. So, as you start reading the New Testament, look again to see how it refers to the resurrection. I, I will hope that if you've grasped a bit of what I've said tonight, that some things will kind of pop out in 3D in a fresh way. Let's just look at one. Romans 1, verses 1 to 4. And look at the way the New Testament highlights the significance of the resurrection. Romans chapter 1, page 1128, 1128 in the Red Bibles. Romans chapter 1, page 1128. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God. That's messianic language. The Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'll encourage you on that wet, rainy afternoon, after you read through the uh, Acts uh, sermons, keep reading. Keep looking to see how it refers to the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus shows that the resurrection age has commenced. That Jesus is the ruler or Messiah. That he has conquered death, he gives new life, and that new life uh, will prepare us for the life to come. And he will be the judge uh, of that next age. Now, what are the alternatives to um, what I've been saying tonight? What are some of the challenges to it? Well, here are some alternatives. Here's the probably most popular one right now. The, the whole view of immortality. It's being made more popular, I think, through um, New Age uh, religious views, through Eastern mysticism. And it's this idea that really that we all have a drop or two of some world soul or spirit that, that never dies but keeps being recycled again and again until we finally sort of get uh, escaped back into some big bucket of world soul or something like that. And there's a whole sort of religions and mysticism that has that view. When you think about it, it really is an awful idea. Because it means we have no real personal identity. And that the ultimate 
aim for us is just really personal obliteration. I, I don't think that sounds that appealing to me, really. Here's another alternative. Uh, people say the resurrection is impossible. This is one of the standard objections for those who don't believe it happened. And the argument is something like this. Well, this is just, this is just crazy. It's absurd. Dead people do not rise from the dead. It just does not happen. And so, Jesus' resurrection can't have happened either. That's basically the argument, isn't it? But this is the sort of argument that prevents you from ever discovering anything new in the world. After all, there was a time when they thought it impossible that the earth rotated around the sun. But then after investigation, they discovered it was not only possible, but it was the case. And people have, have tried to come up with alternative explanations for an apparent resurrection-like thing, but that didn't really happen. Maybe Jesus was not really dead, some say. Maybe he just swooned and then was revived, and, or the disciples stole the body. And arguments like that really are very thin if you start taking them forensically and, and, and sort of with a legal mindset, really try and grapple with the data that we have in history. It's a pretty empty idea. Josh McDowell, his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, is still worth a look at. It's a helpful resource. If you want to look at the evidence a bit more, there's two other good books, Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison, or more recently, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Now, both these men, Frank and Lee, uh, were uh, journalists who set out to disprove the resurrection. They were um, antagonistic, and as they looked at the facts, they, they ended up believing in the resurrection, becoming convinced, and becoming Christians. So I'd encourage you to have a look at those books if you want to look at those ideas around the historicity of the resurrection. Here's another alternative. People want to say, oh, it's just a spiritual resurrection. Uh, it's an alternative put forward largely by unbelieving theologians who wish to retain the name Christian, but don't really believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And they want to argue that really it was a spiritual thing or a poetic event. I don't know what a poetic event is. I guess you write poetry about it. But uh, it was some poetic, spiritual event, but not real, not physical. It's just as the disciples got together, they thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus was alive? Oh, it would, wouldn't it? Let's just think he's alive. I don't know how that works exactly. It doesn't bear a lot of scrutiny, in my opinion. It is hard to find any foundation or evidence for this in the New Testament. Quite the opposite. 1 Corinthians 15 argues that if Jesus isn't risen truly and bodily, then Christianity is pointless. Uh, listen to these words, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Don't buy that line where people say, well, even if it's not true, it's a wonderfully moral faith, it'll do you good. Nonsense. If, it, if he didn't rise, it's, it's a waste of time. Much better to abandon the pretense of Christianity than to try and make it resurrection-less. So in conclusion, taking back to that slide that we had at the beginning, keep flicking forward there, please. There, great. I think this point about the resurrection of Jesus is certainly one of the more difficult ones for people to understand because it's based on so many Old Testament concepts that sometimes we just don't share. Whether we're Christian or non-Christian, we often don't know our Bibles well enough to, to get what's being said. And for people to really get this, we might need to spend more time 
opening up the Bible and showing to them this Old Testament hope that Jesus fully meets. But meanwhile, we do need to assert an important part of the gospel presentation is that by virtue of being raised from the dead, Jesus is declared to be the Messiah, the Christ, the ruler of the world. He is the one who has conquered death. He is the one who gives new life and who will return to judge. There was a very big funeral here last Monday to uh, give thanks to God for the life of Colin Peckham Sr. It was a wonderful funeral. Uh, If you're not a Christian here, it might be a strange thing to hear that. It was a wonderful funeral. Because the hope of the resurrection just changes everything as we consider the reality that death is coming. It is the only thing that gives hope and meaning. It was a service of joyful thanksgiving for the life of Colin Peckham. It was a service of thanksgiving to God for the glory of the gospel. And that we buried a body in the ground, but that's not it. That body will be raised, imperishable, incorruptible, to live with Christ for all eternity amongst God's people. This is the glory of the gospel, my friends. Let's not be frightened of sharing it. Uh, Let's commend it. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this event in history where you vindicated your son, declared him with great power by your spirit to be the son of God, the Messiah, the Lord and judge of the world. And so we thank you for uh, each person here who's had eyes to see this truth and respond. And we pray that you'd have mercy upon those who are still in rebellion against you and in rejection of your son. We pray that you would help them to think and meditate on what we said tonight and draw them to yourself. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.